truth tonight. Um, that you are, that you are more than enough for us. That you are so good and so gracious and so merciful that you are better um, than, than anything that we could ever dream or, or want or imagine. So Lord, I, as we open your word tonight, I ask that that be, uh, be a truth that we leave here um, heavy on our hearts and, and light on our lips that we, that we can leave here boldly proclaiming that we believe that you are enough. And so Lord, in this time, will you speak to us? I speak through me, will my words be yours, and um, we, we just invite you to move. You are welcome here. It's your Sunday, we pray. Amen. Thanks, guys. Well, good evening. How's everybody? All right, there we go. Uh, well, my name is Josh Story, and I'm one of the young adult pastors here at Christ Chapel, and um, it is so good to be here uh, with you guys tonight speaking. So if you will, turn with me to Luke uh, chapter 4. We'll be hanging out there. Um, and if you don't have a Bible, uh, we have some Bibles in the seat back in front of you. Just um, pull that out and uh, you can follow along. Um, so I need, to, I need to confess something. Cards on the table. Um, I like to start sermons off with a really cute, funny story that ties in really, really nicely with whatever I'm talking about. Um, but the problem is that tonight we're talking about temptation. And this week I, I realized uh, that cute, funny stories about temptation don't exist um, because every story about temptation always ends really badly, right? It's always like, yeah, I was like tempted to cheat on this thing. And then I did, and yeah, and so like, like everything always ends with like, yeah, I was tempted, and then, oh, dang it, I fell into that temptation, right? And so the, the reality is, in, in fact, like the only story that I could think of that was like positive is this old like preacher's legend um, about, about this pastor who like uh, walks into an elevator, and, and this like really pretty woman walks on, and he's like, uh, hey, what floor? And, and like a really seductive voice is like, whatever floor you're going to, and, he, and, and, like, and like for a minute, he was like tempted to sleep with her, and then he was like, no, get out of here, you woman of the night. And like kicked her, I don't know. <laughs> Kicking her seems really aggressive. I, I don't know if that's how it happened. But like that's the only story I could think of, but I'm not even sure it's true, so I'm not going to tell it. Um, but uh, so basically, like the, the reality is that like really cute, funny stories about temptation, they just don't exist. And they, they don't exist for a very specific reason. And the reason is that we're sinners, right? that we're, we're sinful people with the sin nature, and we like to do sinful things. Right? Like, like, like we have this kind of innate bent where our innate instinctual reaction um, when we come across temptation, which is this kind of fork in the road moment where we have the choice to either follow the Lord and, and obey him and, and, and submit to what he has called us to, or we can run the other way and kind of do our own thing, which we call sin, right? And so um, our kind of instinctual reaction is to run the other way. And so um, because of that, we as believers think that temptation is a really big deal. And so, in fact, like, Christians for, for centuries, for, for years and years and years, have been trying to figure out ways for us to overcome temptation, right? And, and so, over the years, there's, there's been a number of different strategies that people have proposed. And if you've grown up in church, maybe um, you've heard some of these. So, so for instance, some people um, grew up hearing that uh, accountability was the way to go, right? And so, if you could find people who could surround you and keep you accountable, then, then you wouldn't be tempted. But the problem with that one is that you have to be vulnerable, and, and, and we don't really like to tell people what we're struggling with, so, so that one kind of falls apart. And so then we think, okay, maybe you were taught that, that prayer, if, if you're tempted, you just pray really hard, 
and you'll pray it away, but sometimes that doesn't work. Or, or, or maybe actually, like, you don't even consider sin to be a thing, right? And so you kind of hear this, and you're like, ah, temptation, I don't, I don't really struggle with that because I don't really see sin as a big deal. Um, for, for me, I grew up hearing one specific thing, and maybe you've heard it too. I grew up hearing that scripture memory was the key. Anybody else ever hear that? Yeah, that like, that if, if you memorize certain Bible verses that were pertinent to whatever you were struggling with, then you could just recite the verse and that temptation would just disappear, right? And so, so what happened is, is I kind of began to view scripture as um, this like book of magical incantations that I could just kind of sprinkle over temptation like a Harry Potter spell, right? It's like, ha, huh, uh, first Corinthians 618, <laughs> and you're like, that was a close one, you know? But like, but the reality is that it didn't work. And I would get really frustrated because the reality is that's not how the Bible works, right? And so, and so I found myself in this place where, where, where I would memorize all these verses and, and I would know the truth about what the Bible said about sin, but I would get into a place and it didn't help me at all. So, so I, I would memorize a verse like 1 Corinthians 6.18 that says, flee from sexual immorality. And, and I would know that verse and I would have it memorized, but the reality is that it wouldn't do me a whole lot of good when I found myself on the couch with my girlfriend at midnight. And I would, I would cross lines, and I would fall, and I would leave, and I'd be just, I'd just feel defeated. I'd feel frustrated because I knew the truth. I memorized that verse, but for some reason it wasn't enough to keep me from falling into temptation. And maybe you've kind of felt that same way. Has anyone ever felt that, that sense of being just defeat, and this frustration when, 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 when you know something to be true, but you still fall? So, so, so guys, maybe you've, you've read that passage where Jesus says, you've, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say that if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in, in your heart. And maybe you've read that passage, and, and you know that passage, and you know what the Bible says about lust, but you find yourself going to that website that you swore you'd never go back to. And maybe that, that verse even came to mind as you're scrolling through, and you're like, man, I know this is sin, I know this is sin, but for whatever reason, knowing the truth wasn't enough to keep you from falling. Or... Or, ladies, maybe you're fully aware that Psalm 139 says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Maybe you're fully aware that, that it says that you are woven together intricately in the womb and that God has designed you perfectly. But despite knowing that truth, you find yourself still falling into that trap to compare yourself to other girls or pictures you see in magazines or whatever it may be, and, and, and you feel just defeated. Because... You know the truth, but it's not enough to keep you from falling. I think on some level, we've, we've all kind of been there where, where we know things to be true. We know what Scripture says. We know what the Bible says about sin, but it's not enough to keep us from falling into sin. And that's so defeating. So, so what do we do with that? If, 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 our, if we're sinful people, if our natural bent is to sin, yet knowing Scripture or, or having a knowledge of Scripture isn't enough to keep us from falling, then man, what do we do with that? Well, I want to propose a solution tonight. And this isn't a new solution. This isn't really even this groundbreaking solution. But it's just something that we don't do. And, and I firmly believe that if we were to actually do this, and it's really, really simple. It's hard to do, but, it, but, it's, but it's a simple concept. And I think that if we were to actually implement this and do it, I think it would transform the way that we handle temptation. And so it's this. It's the idea that the key to overcoming temptation is to trust that God is better than whatever is tempting you. I want to propose tonight that the key to overcoming temptation is uh, to trust that God is better than whatever is tempting you. Now, with that being said, I want to clarify something. I don't want you to hear me say that knowing Scripture isn't important. 
Okay? I firmly believe that knowing Scripture, memorizing Scripture, meditating on Scripture is unbelievably important for the life of the believer. But I want to clarify why it's important. It's not important because it's this book of magical incantations that we can just kind of throw at um, temptation because that's not how it works. The reason that knowing Scripture is so important is because God has graciously chosen to reveal himself to us through the written word. And so if we are to develop a a mindset or a view of God that we can see him as better, that can only come through knowing God, and knowing God only comes through the scriptures. So so it kind of goes hand in hand, because we have to know scripture, we have to dive in and and know that God as he has revealed himself to us, if we ever want to get to a place where we develop a view that he is better. And and, and so I firmly believe that trusting that God is better than whatever is tempting us is going to be the key to overcoming temptation. And I believe that because that's exactly how Jesus handled temptation. And here's what I think is so cool. There is one person in the history, sorry, this is 11. There's one person (laughs) in the history of the universe who has never fallen into temptation. One person. And we have a historical account of how we did it. Like Luke wrote to Theophilus, as we saw in chapter 1, to, to provide certainty. Like, like this is a historical, a historical account that you may have certainty when it comes to the things of Jesus. And so he has this account, and so we have evidence of how Jesus did it. And, and so I don't know about you, but I fall into temptation a lot. And so if one person was able to do it, if he was able to be sinless, I want to know how he overcame temptation. So what I want us to do tonight is really simple. I want us to to read this account, and I want us to just look and study how Jesus overcame temptation. And I want us to just to learn from him. And then I want us to finish by figuring out, man, how do we do that? How do we get to that place where we actually trust that God is better than whatever is tempting us? Sound good? Cool. Um, So look with me, if you will, to Luke Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 1. We'll have the verses up on the screen as well. It says, In Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. All right, so stop right there for, for, for a second. Um, there's two things I want to point, point out. The first thing is that it says that Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's incredibly important for us to understand going in because the only way that you will ever um, develop a, a view that God is better is by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's job is to illuminate Scripture, to, to bring insight, to bring understanding. And so the reality is that if we ever try to, to defeat temptation on our own, we're going to fall because you don't have the power on your own physically to overcome temptation. And, and, so, and so it's important to, to, to understand that the reason that Jesus um, overcomes isn't because he's some really awesome dude. He is, but it's because he is full of the Holy Spirit that has provided him with the knowledge of who God is that allows him to see him as better. And so first I want you to see that he is full of the Holy Spirit. The second thing is I want you to see that there is a distinction between temptation and sin. Okay? Um, we believe theologically that Jesus is sinless. And this is very clear that he has been tempted for 40 days. And so there's a distinction between being tempted and actually falling into that temptation, which is sin. And so, so hopefully that's encouraging to you. Hopefully it's encouraging that, that you can be tempted, that you can have a thought that, that tempts you, but know that you don't have to actually do it, right? That, that there is a distinction between temptation and sin. So those are just two small things that I want to point out as we go on. So let's keep reading. Look at verse 3. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. I want us to break down this temptation for a second. 
Um, this is a really interesting temptation because on the surface, it doesn't look like he's asking him to do anything sinful, right? Like Jesus has been in the desert fasting, wandering around for 40 days. Um, and so the fast is over now and he's hungry, right? And so because the fast is over, he has every right to eat. And so when Satan shows up and he says, hey man, you should turn that rock into bread. Like it doesn't seem inherently wrong or inherently sinful. But here's the other part of the story. Jesus is still in the wilderness, right? He's still in the desert. He's still in a place where food doesn't exist, right? And so this is very similar to him um, being like the Israelites as they're wandering around in the desert for 40 years. And so what, what Jesus is doing is, is he is waiting for the Lord to provide in his perfect timing, right? Jesus could absolutely turn this rock into bread, but he is still in the desert knowing this is not a place where food exists. So I'm going to keep walking, trusting that my God is going to provide just as he did in the desert in Exodus, Right? And, so, and so what's the temptation here then? The temptation here is to, um, sorry, hold on a bit. It's the temptation to take things into our own hands rather than waiting on the Lord to provide. The temptation here is to take things into our own hands rather than waiting on the Lord to provide. So let me kind of explain what that means. I think the hardest thing in the world for us is to wait on the Lord. Um, I had a friend tell me once that God's timing is impeccable. And I love that phrase. The problem is I very rarely ever get to see that it's true um, because I'm, I'm impatient, right? And the reality is, is that we all want things. And if we want something badly enough, then our temptation is to take things into our own hands and do something about it rather than waiting on God to provide in his perfect timing for us. So um, we see this play out in a lot of different areas, but one way that I see this a lot practically is in how we handle relationships. Um, so, uh, there's a large majority of the people in this room who are single and out of the people in this room who are single, I would venture to say that the majority of us want to get married. Like that's a desire. We, we, we desire a spouse, right? And maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but at some point in time we desire to get married and hear me say this, that's a good desire. That's a great desire. There's nothing sinful or wrong about wanting or desiring a spouse. In fact, Proverbs says that he who finds a wife finds a good thing. So there is nothing inherently wrong or sinful about desiring a spouse. But here's the problem. We live in Texas, right? And if you're not married by 22, people look at you funny, right? Like, have you ever been there? Right? Like, like, I'm 27 and single. Like, I get Match.com subscriptions for my birthday now. Like, like that's how it plays out, right? Some of you guys were like, oh, that's hilarious. Some of you are like, I'm on, I'm on Match.com. That's, that's not funny at all. Um, it's totally cool. Um, but here's the, like, like we live in a culture, right, that, that, that makes us feel, if you're single, you fully know what I'm talking about. You, you feel like less of a person. You feel insufficient. You feel like, like, like you're missing out on something because of the way that our culture views relationships. And so what happens is you kind of go, go through a season and you may think, I have to have a relationship. I have to get married. I have to have this person because that's what's going to make me happy. And so instead of waiting on the Lord to provide that person for you, you think, God, you're taking too long. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And what happens in those moments is that we tend to settle for what's less than ideal. Right? I mean, that's, that's how we find believers in relationships that are unhealthy or relationships that are unequally yoked, is we get to a place where I mean, we just think God's too slow. And the temptation in those moments is to say, no, 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 I'm going to do this on my own. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And we miss out on what God does when God provides. And so in those moments, and like, what's, what, what's our response? How do we respond when we're tempted to take matters into our own hands? What does Jesus say? It says, man shall not live on bread alone, 
Now, I'm going to admit, that's kind of a weird phrase the first time you read it. Like, what does that, that mean? Well, what he's saying is that, man, he could easily turn that rock into bread, but that's a temporary fix. Right? Like, like he, he wants to see the Lord provide, or see God provide in his timing. Right? And so the reality is that, yeah, he could turn that rock into bread, and it would probably satisfy him for a moment, and it would pro- probably be, be pretty good. But he had this understanding that watching God provide, whatever God had in store for him was so much better than whatever he could do on his own. Because the reality is that you can take matters into your own hands, and you, and you can make things happen. Right? Like, like you do have that ability, but I can guarantee you that whatever you accomplish on your own and your own strength is going to pale in comparison to what God has in store for you. Let me give you one last example, and then we'll move on. I have a buddy named uh, Randy, and, and, and Randy didn't get married until he was about 32. And one day, he and I were getting lunch after he was married, and I didn't know this, but he said, hey, did, did you know that me and my wife were both the virgins when we got, got married? I'm like, no, nah, it never came up in conversation. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, he, goes, he goes, we were. Um, he says, and do you know how embarrassing it is to be a 32-year-old virgin? I was like, I'm, I'm, I don't know, I don't, I'm not 32, so we'll find out. But, um, uh, <laughs> uh, but I was, he goes, man, it's incredibly embarrassing. He says, Let's, so do you know how hard it is to, to, to wait on the Lord to provide it and not say, God, like, you're taking too long, I'm going to do my own thing. So it's incredibly hard. But you know what I'm so happy about? I'm so happy that we waited on the Lord to provide someone for us. Because what we have is ours and ours alone. And like, there, there's no brokenness that we have to wade through in our relationship because of past relationships. There's no comparison. I'm not comparing her to other girls. She's not comparing me to other guys. We don't have preferences. We get the beauty of figuring this out together. So what we have is ours, and it's sacred, and it's special. And we get to ex- experience the fullness of joy of how God created marriage and sex to be. And it wasn't easy getting there but I'm so glad that we waited on the Lord to provide. And so hear me say this. I fully understand this feeling of wanting to take matters into our own hands because when we want something bad enough and God doesn't give it to us right when we want it, it's so easy to say, no, no, I, I got this. It's easy to fall into that temptation. But the reality is that God's not trying to rob you of joy. If God doesn't give you what you want exactly when you want it, it's not because God's trying to rob you of joy. It's because he has something better. But, it, but we're, that temptation's real. That temptation's real. And, and until we begin to trust that God is better than whatever is tempting us, we're, we're going to continually kind of run and fall into that temptation because it's a struggle. It's a struggle. Let's look at the second temptation. Look at verse 5. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. All right, so this has to be an incredibly enticing moment, right? Like, like Satan takes Jesus up to this uh, mountaintop, and he says, Hey, look, and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Like, how epic would that have been? And he says, hey, all of this is yours. All the control, all the power, all the authority, everything that you want, all of this belongs to you. All you have to do is worship me. And he says, no. What's the temptation here? It's control. 
He tempts him with the idea that he can be in control, that he can have all the authority, that he can be master and lord of his own life. And, and here's what I think is so interesting about the way that Satan tempts us, but also tempts Jesus. Notice that like, Satan's not tempting him with things that aren't uncommon. Right? Everything that he tempts him with is something that is really, really common that we fall into all the time. So like, Satan's not showing up with black tar heroin right? and being like, hey man, you want some? He's like, no. Like, no, no, no. Now, granted, that's a legitimate struggle for some, some people, but it's not common. Like, it's not something that everybody in this room struggles with. But control? Like, like who doesn't want control? If I'm being honest, I love control. Right? I want to be real chance, transparent for a second. I know that control freak is not an attractive quality, right? So I tone it down. But in my heart, know that I want control. I don't care if it's something as mundane as where we're going to eat. Like, if I want torsies, I freaking want torsies, right? Like, 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 I don't want Thai food. I don't want, like, like I, I want torsies, right? Like, that's how I'm wired. And so, so I want control. But here's where I see in, in my own life where I want control the most. It's in my plans. It's in my future. It's, it's, it's in these things. Because I have an epic idea of what my life should look like. I have epic plans, and maybe you do too. And you know why I have these, these epic plans and why I want control of my future? Because I know what's best for me, obviously, right? Like, 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 I know me. Like, I know what's best for me. So I know what career I should have. I know how much money I should make. I know what kind of person I should marry. I know what city I should live in. I know all these things because I know me. And so because I know what's in my best interest, I fight and scratch and claw and manipulate and do whatever I can to control the situation so that my life plays out exactly how I want it to play out. And so the fact, honestly, that I'm a single 27-year-old pastor in Fort Worth, Texas is hilarious if you knew me in college. It's hilarious. Because nothing about my life is how I wanted it to turn out, right? I had this plan where I was going to marry the girl that I was dating in my senior year of college. We were going to move to Nashville, and I was going to pursue my dream to be a songwriter. And we were going to live on love until I wrote my first single, because cause then we're going to live on money, because you can't live on love forever. It's just not feasible. Um, it's just math. Um, but uh, we were going to write this song, and we're going to make all this money, and it's going to be awesome. And, and like, that was my plan, that I was going to be this big-time writer in Nashville. Obviously, that didn't happen, right? And, and there was a season where I was frustrated, and I was like, God, what are you doing? Why am I here? Right? But because I had a vision for how my life played out, and it didn't go according to plan, and it frustrated me, and I wanted that control. And maybe you feel me. And maybe you're a college student and, and you have this vision of how college was going to play out for you and you're halfway through and you're realizing that nothing's gone according to plan and it's frustrating because you can't control it. Or man, maybe you just finished college and you had this vision for the kind of job that you were going to get and what kind of money you were going to make and you find yourself sitting in your cubicle making $32,000 a year and you're thinking, this is not what I thought life would be like after college. I have a bachelor's degree. <laughs> like, why am I not making 100K driving a Beamer? Like, do they understand my worth? Right? Like, and, and, and we get frustrated because it's like, that's not how we thought it would go down. Or, or, or maybe you're single and you're like, man, I'm pushing 30 and I thought I would be married by now. I'm not. And, and in these moments when we realize that we don't have control, because the temptation is to buy the idea that we can have control. And we can't. We serve a God who's in control. Right? But when we realize that God's in control and we're not, man, it tends to make us frustrated. 
But have you ever asked why? You know, why am I so con- consumed with control? Why do I want to be the one in charge of my own life? When I think about for me, and I, I don't want to speak for you, but when I, when I think about me, it's because deep in my soul I don't believe that God is for me. I want control of my life and my future and my plans because deep down I don't believe that God has my best interest at heart. Somewhere along the way I've bought a lie that God is against me, that God's trying to rob me of joy. And so because I think that, man, that's when I try to take control of the situation because I don't think God's for me. But that's a lie. Scripture is clear that our God is a God who's for us that he delights in us, that he even sings and rejoices over us, that he works all things together for our good. So the reality is that God is for us. And when we begin to understand that God's for us, that he's not trying to rob us of joy, then that changes the game. Because we understand that, man, God is so much better, that his plan for my life, that him being in control, that me submitting to his lordship is so much better than me being lord of my own life, me taking control of my own life. I mean, that's how Jesus responds. He says, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Like, what would possess a person to say that? He has every opportunity to be in control of his own life. Why would he submit to someone else's authority? Why would he choose to serve someone else when he can be Lord of his own life? It's because he understands that this is a God who is for us. He's not against us. Is for us. And so because of that, submitting to his lordship is so much better than being lord of his own life. Let's look at, at the last temptation. Verse 9. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered me, said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is what I think is so interesting about Satan as we kind of look about how he tries to tempt us. He is a master at, at twisting God's words because he, he shows up and he takes Jesus to this temple. And he says, Hey, I know scripture too. If you want to throw out scripture, I know scripture too. And what I know about scripture is that if God really loves you, if you're really his son, if God really cares about you, then you can throw yourself off of here and you won't experience pain. God won't allow you to experience pain. God won't allow you to hurt. He won't even allow your foot to bleed, which is a really funny thing to say to the guy who's about to get nailed to a cross. But he twists scripture to say, hey, I know about you. And if God really cares, then throw yourself off of here because he's not going to let you experience pain. So what's the temptation here? The temptation is to doubt God's love and commitment to us when we experience pain. The temptation is to doubt God's love and commitment to us whenever we experience pain or whenever things get hard. Somewhere along the way, Christians have bought, and maybe just people in general, have bought into the idea that when you become a Christian, you don't have problems anymore. 
Somewhere along the way, we've bought into this idea that if you come to Jesus, all your problems go away, everything is good, you don't experience hardship, you don't experience pain, and I have no earthly idea where that came from. No idea. Because it's not in Scripture. In fact, Jesus said in John 15, he said, hey, the world's going to hate you. You know how I know? Because they hated me. In fact, they hated me enough to kill me, and so if they hated me enough to kill me, then how much more are they going to hate you for following me? So, so Jesus even called it, right? And then after, after that, all of his disciples, all of his crew went to die horrendous deaths. And then if you look in church history at all of our kind of founding fathers of our faith or all the great theologians or writers or pastors or missionaries, they've all experienced crazy tragedy. If you talk to our staff, like every single person I know on our staff has experienced some sort of really tragic situation. So I don't know where we get the idea that, that being a Christian means that we have a life free of trouble. Granted, we are promised an ever-present help in our time of trouble. But we're never promised a life free of trouble. But the problem is that we begin to believe a lie that if God really loves us, if he, if he really cares about us, then he won't allow us to experience pain. And so what typically happens is something hits the fan. All right, so you lose a loved one or you lose a relationship, or you lose a job, or you get sick, or you fall on hard times, or something happens, and you say, God, where are you? God, like, why is this happening? God, I thought I was your son. God, I thought I was your daughter. God, I thought you were for me. God, I thought we had something going. But, like, what is going on here? And we begin to kind of doubt God's love and commitment. And when we doubt his love and commitment, we begin to make up these really ridiculous tests. We say, God, if you really care about me, then you'll heal my mom. And so if you don't heal my mom, I'm going to count this as a sign that you don't really care, so I'm out. God, this relationship is jacked. And, and if you really care about me, then you will restore this relationship. And if you don't, then I'm out because you obviously don't care. God, I am in the desert. I am so dry. I haven't heard from you in months. And if I don't hear from you right now, then that must be a sign that you don't care and I'm out. And we create these tests because we fall into this temptation to doubt God's love and commitment just because things get hard. But I want to be very clear about something. God's love for you doesn't change when your circumstances do. God's commitment to you doesn't change when your circumstances do. God's love and commitment, they're, they're not circumstantial, right? God is a God of constant, he is constantly loving you. But the temptation is to, to, to think that this is all circumstantial. And so when things get hard, then God must be unloving. He must not be committed. He must not care about me. And we fall into the temptation to doubt him and then eventually push him away. When you stiff arm God in the midst of a trial, you're pushing away your only source of hope. You're pushing away your only source of comfort or of peace. And... And I want to be sensitive as I say that because, because tragedy is not lost on me. Grief is not lost on me. I, I understand that that's, that's much easier said than done. But the reality is that God is so faithful in his love for us that his love and commitment don't change when our circumstances do. 
And when we begin to understand that, then we view these, these situations as tragic as they may be. And we say, man, I, I know who God is. I know he's good. I know he's loving. I know he's committed. I know he's not going anywhere. And that allows us to see that, man, I, I don't need to test him. I don't, I don't need to put him to the test because I know, who, I know that he's better. So when it comes to this idea of us man, overcoming temptation, and when I see the way that Jesus handles it, I have to think that man, it comes down to trusting that God is better than whatever is tempting us. We have to come to a place where, where, where we trust that, that whatever happens, that God is better than whatever is tempting us. Now, here's the deal. That, does, that trust doesn't come overnight. Okay? Trusting someone doesn't come overnight because the reality is that man, you may not even believe this. You may hear that and say, man, that sounds really good, that's, but that sounds kind of churchy, and I don't really buy it. If that's where you are, man, I, I would challenge you to call my bluff. I would. Because the way that trust works is that it requires faith. It requires a, a step of faith to, to trust that someone is exactly who they say they are. I mean, I mean that's how our relationships here work, right? So, um, for instance, I have a little sister, and I love this girl to death. Um, we don't have a father, and so I have this kind of protective thing about me um, when it comes to her. And so she just started dating this guy. Um, Colin, if you're podcasting, I'm talking to you, bro, um, <laughs> just to clear it up. And um, I don't know, know this guy, right? Um, and so because I don't know him, I don't trust him, right? And so, um, but, but I love this girl so much that I would, like, easily go to jail for her, right? And if you see me, like, I'm not built for a hard time, right? Like, I'm not, I'm just not. Um, but I would start a prison ministry in a heartbeat if this guy touched her, right? And so, and so this guy starts taking my little sister on dates. And so there's a level of faith that I have to have that allows us to build trust, right? And so, and so he can say that he's a good dude and that he cares about my sister, right? But I don't quite believe that. But you know how I develop that trust? I say, all right, man, I'm going to take a step of faith. And every time that you bring her back and she has a smile on her face, I trust you a little bit more. Every time that you take her out and you bring her back and you take great care of her, I'm going to trust you more. Every time that you take her out and you treat her like a lady and you affirm her and you make her feel worth and value, man, I'm going to trust you. Right? But there has to be this moment where I take a step of faith where I say, hey, man, I don't know you. I don't really believe you. I don't really trust you. But I'm going to have the faith to trust that you're who you say you are. And every time that you prove to me that you are who you say you are, I'm going to trust you a little bit more. And so the reality is that you may not believe this, and that's fine. But if you're thinking, man, I, I don't really believe that God is better than the things that tempt me, man, call, call my bluff, please. Because I'm willing to bet that if you, do, if you take that step of faith and you trust that God is better, you're going to find that God's exactly who he says he is. So let me give you one last example. Some of you, maybe you've never had a relationship in the world that wasn't physical. And so you hear me talking about it and you think, man, that dude is a prude, right? He's talking about like virginity and sex and all this other stuff. Like that dude's, dude's a prude. There's no way that I'm not going to have a relationship that's not physical, right? All right, on my bluff. And try to have a relationship, and even if you don't believe this. Say, cool, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a step of faith, and I'm going to trust that, that God is better than, than my sexual desires or whatever it is. And I'm willing to bet that you'll find that God's exactly who he says he is, that God is better than that. Who knows, you might even learn how to talk to a person. That's crazy. Communication. 
Who knew? Right? But the reality is then, I, like, I, like, bottom line, challenge tonight, then I, I would encourage you to, to take a step in of faith and, and trust that God's exactly who he says he is. Because when we look at Scripture, we find that the, the God says, man, I'm, I'm better than the world. I mean, we, we just sing that line. Like, if I have you and nothing else, I have everything. That you are more than enough, that you are better. And so, and so my challenge for us tonight as we close is that, man, I want you to believe that he's better. But I can't make you believe that. I, I can lay out for you why I think it, but, but the Holy Spirit has to do a work in your heart. And my prayer tonight is that he does. And so, and so my, my hope is that you leave here and, and you begin to think, man, I'm, I'm going to take that step of faith. I'm going to trust that God is better than the things that are tempting me because I would be willing to bet that if you do, you'll find that God's exactly who he says he is. Let's pray. Father, you are better. Um, I've been saying that for 30 minutes, um, but I say it because I mean it. Um, but I also know that there are moments in time when I, when I don't live it. I don't, I don't respond like I believe it, and, and I fall and I choose other things because I deceive myself into thinking that, that there are things that satisfy more. And so, Lord, I, my desire for us is that we be a people who know that you're better. And that comes from spending time in your word, knowing that that comes from, from, from countless opportunities of allowing us to see that you're exactly who you say you are. So Lord, as we continue tonight in worship, as we um, continue to proclaim the truth that you are better, Lord, I ask that um, through the power of your Holy Spirit, you give us eyes to see that to be true. May this be heavy on our hearts as we proclaim this truth. Lord, we love you, we thank you. Sooner or sooner we pray. Amen.